Well, the music is not necessary for the prayer, it's not necessary for the mass, but because the prayer and the mass is something supernatural, the music helps bringing this prayer to a completely different level, just to make things easier. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. Today on In Good Faith, we're coming to you from the beautiful Cathedral of the Madeline in downtown Salt Lake City. We get to speak with the organist and the assistant music director, Gabrielli Taroni. Gabrielli, thank you for speaking with me. Thank you for having me in your show. Today we get to talk about my two favorite subjects, which are faith and music and how those combine. A lot of kids, when they're choosing an instrument, will pick a trumpet or a violin, something easy to carry around, but even more than a piano, an organ is not portable, <laughs> a pipe organ. And when did you know you were going to be an organist or want to be? Yeah, my parents were quite scared when I, when I brought up that I wanted to study organ. So, like most children, I started playing the piano when I was six, seven years old. And then I studied piano for a while, and then I just quit. It was not interesting to me anymore. There was one day, I was in 12 or 13 years old, and I was watching this documentary on television about the life of a famous organist and conductor, Karl Richter. And they were showing, in, the, in this documentary, quite lengthy, it was showing uh, Richter performing on this big, wonderful German organs. Never seen anything like that before, because my experience of the organ was to mass on Sunday. Yeah, there is somebody playing the organ quite badly, and <laughs> so it was not that interesting to me. But then at that point, I understood that there was a whole universe behind this instrument, and the complexity of the machine is actually what struck me really very much because it was the first time I saw an instrument of that size with keyboards and, and stops and really the, the fascination was about the machine more than about the music that the machine was producing and then the love for music came about as a consequence mm. kind of. We'll talk more about the organ and how that combines in church service in just a minute, mm -hmm. but I wonder if I could talk about you and the family you grew up in. Mm -hmm. Was faith a daily part of your life back then? Yes, I was, I was raised as a Catholic by my parents, Catholic family, so they baptized me when I was, a, when I was an infant. And, and they, they raised me in the Catholic faith, teaching me the, the simple things that, that the church ask parents to teach to their kids and of course there was the you know for them the the duty of the parents to to instruct the children they would take me to the sunday school as you as you call it in the states we call it, we call it the catechismo the catechism and then of course a mass on sundays and holidays that was the, the life of a, of a catholic family do you remember at some point having to make a decision like i've been taught this in my youth now I'm an adult, do I really believe this? Do you remember having to choose or decide if, if you believed in God? No, I don't, I don't, I don't remember this. Mm -hmm. I, I guess I've been very fortunate to be able to be kept in the faith day by day. It's really a daily miracle that happens. Something that you grow up with and then 
the Lord keeps you every day in that same embrace. Do you think, as you look back, are there times when you feel like you've been led or had answers to prayers as you were contemplating your future or, or needing to know things? Every day, every day. Every day we ask, every day we receive. Mm. Then, of course, because we are like little children asking their parents, sometimes the parents say no, and then the children mm. become upset, but good parents say no for a reason, mm. and so does the Lord. But every day I feel led and, and supported, and unworthily so. That's beautiful. I know one of the biggest and most important moments in a Mass is during the prayer mm -hmm. with the host. Mm -hmm. The moment in the Eucharist or communion where it becomes the blood and body of Christ. Yes. I wonder if you could tell me about how you feel about that. That is really the most important thing of the Catholic faith, is the, the real presence of our Lord Jesus Christ under the appearances of bread and wine that are consecrated during the Mass. Mm. So the Mass, as, as a prayer of the Church, as a prayer of Christ, has different parts. And then, as you said, the most important part is when the priest acts in persona Christi, said. It's a Latin locution. It means in that moment, the priest is Christ himself. When he consecrates the bread and the wine, the words of the consecration are very important and are the words that Christ himself said on the Last Supper. Mm. So when the priest says, this is my body, this is my blood, that's when bread and wine cease to exist as bread and wine, keeping those appearances, otherwise it would be just terrifying. Mm. We wouldn't be able to bear it. So keeping those appearances, they become the flesh and blood of Christ. Now, following this, uh, this miracle that happens every day, then the, the congregation is invited to partake, the celebrant first, the priest who is celebrating, then the congregation is invited to partake of the body and, and blood of Christ, which is present after the consecration in uh, body, blood, soul, and divinity. The whole Christ is present under the appearance, the accidents, it's called, of, of bread and wine. That's when then the whole congregation comes up to receive, to receive communion, we say. And that would happen even without music. Yes. But you choose music to accompany that to help create that spiritual atmosphere. Well, the music is not necessary, okay, for, of course, for the prayer. It's mm -hmm. not necessary for the Mass. But because, again, the prayer and the Mass as a prayer is something supernatural. Right? The music brings this prayer and helps bringing this prayer to a complete different level. That is just to make things easier. Communion is one of these moments and there are, uh, you know, in the, in the repertoire of the, of the church, there are proper chants that, that are appropriate for communion. Organ, I've heard you describe the organ and the cathedral in a particular relationship. Mm -hmm. Will you tell me about that? When we think about a musical instrument, for example, a violin, right? We hold it and we have the whole instrument in our hands. 
Now, when we think about the organ, we should think about the organ itself only as the mean that produces the sound. But then the instrument is the building, is the whole building that resonates and then reverberates the sound. So the instrument that we have here, we move it in another place, it's not gonna work. It's gonna work, of course, it's gonna produce a sound, but it's not gonna give us that same, that same experience. So organs are designed for the building. I heard you describe it once as the organ is the vocal cords. Yes, yes, exactly. Exactly. It's like the vocal cords are the part of our body that produce, that make the air vibrate so the sound can propagate. But then the body, you know, and the head is what shapes the sound. Or another example is the guitar or the violin. You know, we have the strings. The string is the object that vibrates, but then it's the wood around it that produce the sound and we can recognize as a violin, as a, as a guitar, or as a, as a cello. I wonder if you tell me about being the organist in the Papal Basilica of Santa Maria Maggiore in Rome. Huge uh, privilege, great mm. experience. So, and I started and I had the experience of actually growing up in that environment. So it was one of my teachers who asked me to become his assistant when I was 18. That's where I started working on the field. I, I was still a student, so I was still taking lessons and, and developing repertoire and knowledge. But then I had this weekly experience of what an organist, what a church musician does. Yeah, and I learned a, a lot for many years. Then uh, eventually, when he was appointed in St. Peter, I was asked to become the titular organist in Santa Maria Maggiore. And I kept that position for four years before moving to the, to the United States. So you grew up in Rome. You play in one of the papal basilicals near the Vatican. Mm -hmm. Then you come to Salt Lake City, Utah. And I'm just curious if being a Roman Catholic in Rome feels different when you're a Roman Catholic in Salt Lake City. <laughs> of course, you know the answer about that. <laughs> I have suspicions. You know, you know the answer to that question. So, you know, I come from the, the center of Catholicism, the Roman Catholic Church. It's called Roman because of Rome. <laughs> and then now I am a member of, a, we could say, a minority in, in another city because uh, it's a different balance of confessions. I was a little concerned in, in the beginning because I didn't know how things, the shape that discussions and confrontations could have taken. But then I was, uh, I was impressed by the, you know, the good relationship that we have with, our, uh, with the different confessions that are here, and especially with the, with the LDS Church. And I have many friends. Most of my organ scholars are uh, former BYU students. I have excellent relationships with my colleagues just a few blocks down uh, South Temple. My good friend Andrew Answort played at my wedding in this building. <laughs> he himself is a former organist of the cathedral. So it's good to be together and, you know, and to interact on a level where we can interact. With, yeah. For example, the arts. I have never experienced another city that has such a deep love for the organ. It's wonderful to be here. I think it's unusual for organists to be recognized on the street, but you've had that experience yes, since yes, coming here. Yes, it's, uh, it was uh, unbelievable, inconceivable to me, you know, for an organist to be, <laughs> to be recognized like, you know, a soccer player or, a, or an actor. <laughs> but it happened, I can tell you the story. So I was with my wife at some doctor's appointment, and the nurse somehow 
learned that I was uh, that I was the organist at the cathedral, and, and then her eyes uh, got like this wide, and then she started bringing all kind of people in because they wanted to meet me. <laughs> Well, you were playing while we were setting up this morning, and mm -hmm. you played a procession that we'll, yes. we'll hear part of later. For me, I'm holding back the tears as it builds up, and I'm picturing the procession up through the town and coming in with the Eucharist. And then you come to that climactic moment you described, and exactly. having the perfect music exactly. for that. It's uh, the reason why I chose that piece of music, is uh, precisely in connection with, with what we were discussing a moment ago. The core of the Christian faith is the real presence of our Lord. So processions are very important for Catholics, and especially the procession of the Solemnity of Corpus Christi, which is the solemnity that celebrates the real presence of our Lord Jesus Christ in the bread and wine. So during these processions, the Blessed Sacrament, so the consecrated host, is placed in a very precious display. It's called Monstrance and then is brought by the priest, followed by the deacons and the, and the acolytes, is brought in procession, and processions can be very, very long, can take hours. And in every town, in every city, the Blessed Sacrament is brought in procession throughout the streets of the city. So Jesus himself is walking, blessing the entire city, okay? So after the procession, when the procession comes back to the cathedral, the organ plays. So this piece of music that you heard this morning is meant to accompany the re-entry of the procession in the church. We need to picture the, the, the priest holding the monstrum, the Blessed Sacrament, with incense, of course, incense, mm. everywhere, and then, and then acolytes, and the, and the deacons, and then, and then the people. Everybody's following Jesus. Okay? They come back and the organ is playing and then the tune that is used in that composition is one of my favorite Eucharistic hymns, that is uh, the Adoro Te Devote, which is one of the hymns that would have been sung in procession. The procession takes you know, a couple of hours and people praying, people singing hymns, and this would have been one of the hymns that are sung in procession. Do you have to turn off your emotions when you're playing? That doesn't make sense because you want to express emotion. But for me, it seems like if I really think about what's happening, that might be very touching, but you have to concentrate on your right. hands and both feet. Yes, I cherish the moment when you have these sparkles of emotion. I cherish them very much when they happen. Those are the little miracles of every day, you know? So it's, I mean, you have to keep your focus, you have to, but you are also being part of something that is supernatural, and your music is accompanying that. So I, no, I don't shut it down. I actually, I, I welcome it very much. And <laughs> I wish I had more of those moments. Mm. Other than music, just day to day, mm -hmm. are there particular practices you do or things you do mm -hmm. that make you feel connected to God? The prayer, uh, it's really everything that, that we can do. 
very blessed to meet some friends some of them are still with us some are, some are not but I was very blessed to by the vicinity of good friends and as I grew up I started realizing how easy it should be to be a Christian and how is this facility of living the faith of the facility of trusting again like a little child mm. in the arms of the of the mother. Sometimes we hear this, uh, we have to strive to achieve this, we have to strive for this and, and that, uh, and, and push ourselves to, uh, I don't know, to gain some sort of transcendent uh, contact. But uh, in my opinion, and, and my, in my experience, and in the experience of, of many that I, of many friends and that I managed to share years with, uh, it's, it's really just realizing that we are following and not leading, that we are chosen and we don't choose. The, the history of Christendom is Jesus handpicking people. That's how it started. Realizing that is what helped me, first of all, in keeping myself humble, and then in just asking to be chosen and kept in the faith every day. So once you have that faith, you can sort of relax and just trust uh, what happens well, and what... Well, I think it was St. Thomas Aquinas. I, I, I'm not an historian, I'm not a theologian. I don't <laughs> want to say, say things that uh, I don't want to be then uh, reproached. But I think it was St. Thomas who said that, of course, it is an action of God, first of all. It is an action of the Lord to call. Mm. Okay? But then it is a, a miracle of the same importance to be brought into the faith in the first place and to be kept in the faith every day. It is the same miracle that has to happen continuously. If that love that comes from God is not a once-in-a-lifetime thing, oh, I'm giving you the faith, then you go and keep it if you want. No, it, it's, it's a continuous process. It's a continuous call. And it's continuously coming from God. It is a miracle to become a Christian and to remain. I think if we think about this, it's, it's very clear. It's very clear to me, maybe I'm, I'm not making any sense, <laughs> but, and I hope, I, am, I, I hope I'm communicating this correctly also, hmm. that it is a miracle to become a Christian in the first place, and it is a miracle to remain you know, in, in such vicinity, in such closeness. We're in the Cathedral of the Madeleine, dedicated to Mary Magdalene. Different cities will have a patron saint, different churches mm -hmm. honoring different saints. 
Do you have a particular saint that is most important to you? Oh, many, many, many saints. Can you tell me about one or two and why? Well, it's hard to pick. Santa Gemma, Santa Gemma Galgani, she was a very young girl suffering terribly diseases, okay? Kind of a model of purity to me. Very, how do you say, when, when somebody doesn't really want to interact with people that I mean very in, introverse but I don't want to say introverse because I'm not I'm, I don't want to mean it in a in a bad accent really I'm trying to find a way to, to describe it you know I mean introverse I guess it's a good mm. it's a good way to put it but very reserved mm. very reserved and then Saint Padre Pio canonized recently Franciscan friar that had the the stigma there. Mm-hmm. The stigma, the, uh, the symbols stigmata. of the crucifixion. Yes, yes, the stigma, the symbols of the crucifixion in his body. And another, another saint, San Leopoldo from Padova. He was from Croatia, but he spent most of his life in Padova, where I also studied. Why these two saints? Because of confession. Because of confession. They're both Franciscan friars, Padre Pio and Padre Leopoldo. And they both spent every day 12 hours, 15 hours in the confessional booth. Mm. hearing confessions from people that would come from all over the world just to not to meet them only but to confess their sins to him and again when when a priest celebrates a sacrament like we said a moment ago mm-hmm. the mass the confession in that moment that priest is Jesus the acts it administers those sacraments in the person of Christ so all these people coming to these poor friars just to meet them because they were very well reputed and respected and, and they had of course the fame of being holy men but of course that fame came because of their closeness to Christ it was easier again it's a matter of how easy things are sometimes it was, must have been so easy for them to recognize that Christ was present in, you know, in that the moment. people could feel exactly. that exactly so because of the eagerness to experience that facility they waited in line uh, maybe one week <laughs> to get to to confess with Padre Pio or with Father Leopoldo. And then let's see who else. San Filippo Neri. San Filippo Neri, very uh, popular saint of the city of Rome, even though he was not from Rome, but that Rome was where he spent most of his life working with children. And again, he's, a, he's an honorary patron saint of Rome. The patron saint of Rome is, of course, St. Peter, which also I should mention. But uh, San Filippo Neri, 1500s, co-patron, honorary patron of, of mm. Rome. Did you ever consider becoming a priest? No, not really. Mm. Not for more than two minutes and a half. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 not really. And yet somehow I think the work you do is similar in helping people come to Christ. Yes, and it's very humbling mm. when we think about that. Because when a church musician is a, is a minister... He's offering his skills, his competence to the service of the, of the church. So like a lector, you know, somebody that I can't read very well, you know, I would make, do a miserable job. But there is people that is talented you know, in reading things and communicating that, they are lectors. And then the cantors, the choristers, the choir, we have all these different skills and talents, and they all come together in the mass. And then we have the priest that... The most important thing that he does is, of course, the consecration of the bread and wine. But then we also have talented and inspired preachers. They offer during the Mass a good uh, reflection to edify the people. And then all these things come together. So we have sometimes, you know, we have some special moments when we have the, the music 
and uh, wire singing, the words that are used in water choir is singing, that the, something that has been said in the homily, or you know, just the action that is taking place. Because there is some action during the Mass, and the music kind of accompanies that, not in a passive way, but it's really an integration of liturgical action and music. One of the two pieces you chose to play for us today is an improvisation mm-hmm. on a hymn, an Ave Maria. Mm-hmm. You spent years studying improvisation, and I think most people, when they hear improvisation, think of jazz musicians. Yes. And yet, as a church musician, you have to adapt yourself to whatever is happening in the service, and that must have been quite useful to have that skill. Exactly, yes. That's something that I try to develop as much as I would for, for my skills. The reason why I wanted to develop that is because I am certain of the importance of improvisation in the, for an organist, in the Roman Catholic Church especially, because there is so much action going on. Mm. You know? For example, the moment when the altar is prepared, in the middle, middle of the Mass, the altar is prepared, the gifts, the bread and wine are brought forth. Usually there is a, there is a hymn that is sung at that time, or the choir sings a motet, most of the time, actually, miraculously match the timing of the music mm. and the time of the preparation. But there are, but there are some times when this action is, uh, is performed differently. You know, there's an incense, for example. The incense is used. And so the organist has to come in and seamlessly mm. extend what has been sung, the hymn or the choir motet. And it, it's, it's beautiful when, uh, when this transition is really seamless. Yeah. So it's as a, like a natural continuation of, of what has been done before. Or communion. The people is receiving communion. You get to accompany the moment when the people is actually receiving Jesus Christ. It's, uh, it's amazing. Mm. You know? Less invasive as possible. Do you have a favorite hymn? Ah, well, the hymns, actually. This is something that I discovered when I moved here. The hymnody. Mm-hmm. It's amazing literature that actually, and we borrow as Catholics, we borrow a lot of tunes and, um, uh, and also texts from mm-hmm. other uh, denominations. There are some texts that work perfectly mm-hmm. for us. And there are some, some, melodies, some melodies that are so beautiful and uh, that I'm so happy to be able to, to have learned. Mm-hmm. And uh, they have become now part of, also of, of, my, of the repertoire, of the liturgical repertoire that I cherish. I always give this example. You know, liturgical music has three legs. For the Roman Catholic Church, it's a very specific uh, category. So, three legs. One leg is Gregorian chant. One leg is the polyphonic music, choral literature, Mm -hmm. and then the popular music. Popular music meaning the the music that is in the heart of the the common knowledge of the faithful. The reason why I say this and I laughed is because it's an example that I bring forth a lot of times. In Italy, we have a monumental repertoire of uh, popular songs, very good music, developed between the 1800 and the first 20 years of the 1900, monumental, very good music, very good Italian texts. But here, instead of that, I see like that third leg here is replaced by the hymnody. So all these good texts, good music, good melodies, it's really the third leg, you know, you need three legs to for a stool to stay up. What should I ask you about your faith that I don't know to ask you? Is there something that you especially wanted to share or think it would be important? There is one uh, sort of misunderstanding regarding the Catholic faith, regarding the veneration of Mary Mm. and the veneration of the saints. 
And I think it's something that is worth mentioning, at least, that some people believe that we Catholics worship Mary, we worship the saints. No, one thing is uh, worship is only for God. But then we have the company of so many saints, our Blessed Mother in the first place, and then all the saints that are in heaven before us, it's a company. So we always ask when we are in a moment of in a challenging situation or we ask friends to pray for us, then what we do, we are just asking those friends in heaven to pray for us. That's what, that's like, what like the veneration is. Like we would do here with yes. our living friends. Exactly, exactly. Mm. But those are, those are friends in it. So if we are asking, I don't know, Uncle Joe to, <laughs> say, to say a prayer for us, well, yes, let's ask Uncle Joe, but let's also ask the mother of the Lord that maybe she has a little, an extra <laughs> ounce of, you know, <laughs> of lead, you know what I mean? Uh, or, or let's ask St. Peter mm-hmm. that was, that was hand-picked by the Lord or, you know, mm. St. John, or another apostle. <laughs> so, so this is what the veneration of the Blessed Mother and the veneration of the saint is. It's just, first of all, is uh, acknowledging the love that God had for these people, you know, and being thankful for the, for the predilection of God mm. towards these people. And then, because they were so loved, and because they are so loved by God, let's ask them to intercede for us, to pray for us. So we light a candle, you know, in front of a statue. We put a flower in front of a statue of a saint just to signify that request of prayer on our behalf from them. I've heard people say that in interfaith relations, rather than two people each explaining their faith, what they need to do is pick a third thing and both focus on that together. Mm. For instance, feeding the poor. Mm-hmm. or creating beautiful music, mm-hmm. whatever it might be. Have you seen that, pulling people together that way through the music that you do, people of different faiths? Well, yes, I see it every day because uh, part of my work is at the choir school. And the choir school brings together children that come from families of all different Christian denominations. They all come together. Then the choristers, of course, perform Roman Catholic literature in the cathedral. Families are, of course, uh, happy about that. They join here for Mass most of the time, and it's wonderful to have them. It's wonderful to see uh, the choir school and and our ministry as as a mission of the Roman Catholic Diocese of Salt Lake City to bring these families from their own places and to have these children join together for a Roman Catholic service. Mm. Because an organ is so technical and you have so many different stops, you Mm -hmm. have the different keyboards, both of your feet are going mm-hmm. pedals for volume, also pedals to play the low notes mm-hmm. that really yes. shake right down to the foundation. What do you need to know or what do you need to do or what ability do you need to be a good organist for a cathedral? The job of a church organist is to accompany the people. Mm. So what is important is to see your performance as a support, not as an imposition. So we are accompanying a hymn, for example. We don't want to overpower, but we want to take leadership in that playing. You know, we are accompanying the choir. Of course, we want the choir to have, the choir has the, has the lead you know, in, in what we are doing. So I, I guess, I guess an, important, an important skill for an organist is to know your boundaries and to know also that, you know, in this case, we have, a, we have an instrument that has quite some power. 
and then we have people sitting here. We don't want to intimidate them. You know, so <laughs> it can be. It can be. You know, if you are sitting down under the under the organ, it's, uh, it can be terrifying. So we don't we don't want that to happen. We want to keep everybody happy and and confident and help them in singing and joining. What did your parents think when you became an organist? I don't know. I guess they were happy. They are happy. My mom says that she she can recognize my playing now from everybody else's. I hope not because of the mistakes. <laughs> I guess it's very unusual. The organ is not a is not an it's not unusual instrument to 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 perform. So they got to learn a lot also, a lot about the church music, church history, the repertoire. And it was a process for them as well. It was a learning, mm. a learning experience for them as well. To me, it says something about you that I've heard you in organ festivals here in the cathedral and mm. the Salt Lake Tabernacle play incredible, technically difficult, impressive pieces. Bach, Toccata, and a few different pieces. I've heard you do that, and mm -hmm. you have that skill. But the idea that you're willing to pull back, to not show off, but to be that support. The phrase that came to me was, you're blessing people, not impressing people. You have to. Yes, I, I guess it's, it's, it's fundamental. Mm. It's fundamental. And then, and then uh, I'm not saying that it's not important to practice. I'm not saying that it's not important to learn new things and to challenge yourself. Mm. But that's kind of in the second place mm. for a church musician. I wonder if you think about the New Testament, for instance. Mm -hmm. Do you have a parable or a scripture that you turn to that's sort of a guiding light to you or something even maybe that you're thinking about right now, recently? Well, as I was thinking about it, of course there are several. But the first thing that comes to my mind right now is uh, the words of Jesus himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Mm. Except through me. And then I guess that explains it all. I mean, yeah. I, I don't think I have to <laughs> clarify any, anything. So it's amazing that if we think truth is a person, then of course you have not chosen me, I have chosen you. That's another, again, as we, we, we were saying before, it's the Christian history is an history of people being chosen. So when you go to the grocery store, mm -hmm. when you are talking with people, just in any situation, mm -hmm. how are you different because you believe in Christ? Or how do you interact differently? Well, you know, we are not perfect. We make mistakes. We try to be the best version of ourselves, you know, at all times but we make mistakes. So I tend not to interact a lot, but sometimes when I, also because of my... Is this why you told me about the saint who sort of kept to himself? Is yes, that... <laughs> oh yes, also, yes, yes. But what I wanted to say is uh, the we all have uh, our uh, edges mm -hmm. and we all make mistakes. Where the Catholic faith comes in, in help, is with the sacraments and the the real possibility, the concrete possibility of changing that is offered by the sacraments, the, the, the confession, for example. Mm. This is what, by the grace of, of God, can help me, hopefully, be a, a better person, a better person in the way I, I offer myself to the other people. Gabriele, you're up there in the, the organ loft. You're playing the organ. You've practiced, tried to choose music to fit the particular liturgy, whether it's Easter or whatever it might be. What do you hear from people? What do people say about being down here 
in the pews and how the music affects them. It is a constant uh, procession of, of people thanking us, not just me, all of the music and liturgy ministers for the work that we do. And I don't know what, what are their emotions in the moment when we perform during Mass, during the liturgy, but, but we know that that is helping them. We have ser- services with music almost every day here. Sometimes we have, we have a Mass here with only 10, 15 people but it takes the same level of commitment mm. to serve small congregation or Easter Sunday morning, the cathedral packed, 1,500 people. It's the, same, it's the same level of commitment. A question about music as relates to worship. We each have our favorite playlists. You know, you choose certain music because you're going to wash your car. Ah. <laughs> certain music because <laughs> you're at a party and you want people to feel comfortable. It's just interesting to me how many different functions music can serve And yet, I think maybe the highest calling of music is how it connects us to the divine. Do you have thoughts? Have you thought about how that happens? Well, you know, for us Catholics, it's a very simple connection. Because most of the literature comes directly from the scripture. Mm. So that connection is already, it's implicit. We, We call it sacred music because it's created for that unique purpose. Mm for that unique purpose of serving the supernatural, to be used in a moment that is other from any other moment we are going to experience in our lives. So that is very straightforward connection. The text, for example, the Gregorian chant repertoire, that scripture just Mm. brought to a level up, using the music to uplift what is already present in the scripture. And the same for all the, the Renaissance motets. Mm-hmm. You know, when Palestrina wrote a motet, that text has been already around for 1,500 years. And he just brought it to a level that is unmatchable, in my opinion. But he did not invent anything from a textual point of view. Mm. That's the connection. What is most important in the music is the text. I wonder if you tell me a little bit about this specific organ. Of the cathedral, they started to build it in 1900. Mm -hmm. It's such a beautiful building. It's Mm -hmm. really a treasure to the community, the musical events as well as the religious services that happen. But tell me, if you would, how many pipes and how does the air get pumped? Some of those things. The cathedral organ has about 5,000 pipes. It's not the largest organ in town, but it's the largest mechanic action instrument Mm -hmm. that we have here. So that means that the way the sound is produced is fully mechanic. So the moment the organist pushes the key, there is a very complex mechanism that runs under the floor and connects to the pipe. There are miles of wooden tracks that spread all over the floor underneath and come up in the organ where the pipes are. So it's not just a button and a wire. Exactly, it's not a switch. Physical action it's happening. A mechanical, and the organist has full control of every single key of the way the sound is produced. Then how does the organ sound? The sound is produced blowing air inside pipes. And why do we have 5,000 pipes? Because every pipe is created to make one single sound mm. for its entire life. We can tune it, but if a pipe is created to sound the G mm-hmm. of the diapason, then we cannot make it sound like a trumpet, an A-flat. 
So every pipe is specifically created to make one sound. So we need an ridiculously high number of pipes <laughs> to get the rich, complex sound of the organ and all the different sound, the different stops. And How often do you have to tune an organ? Too often. <laughs> <laughs> we have to tune the organ very often. There are some stops that are more subject to going out of tune, and they are also easy to tune. And those we have to tune at least once every other week, no more oh, than, I mean, no, no less than once a month. Mm -hmm. Then, there, of course, there is a major tuning of the entire instrument takes about two weeks, and uh, it has to be done maybe some parts once a year and then a major tuning maybe every other year. Mm. How small are the smallest pipes? Like an inch. Uh -huh. Are those the flute sounds? or? Well, at that point... Uh, or those can only yeah, dogs hear. Exactly. <laughs> yes, to, scare, to, scare, <laughs> to scare the bats out of the bell tower. Well, it's the family of the, of the principal. So it's, mm. the, it's really the basic sound of the organ. Mm. Okay? And then uh, the biggest pipes can be more than 30 feet tall. Mm. And those are the low rumbling notes. That's right. That's right. They are so tall that, in fact, they have to curve around. They, have, they come around and they bend because, mm. they, because the ceiling is not high enough to accommodate them. <laughs> yeah, so, they, so they go up and they turn 90 degrees and then back another 90 degrees and they fold on themselves like this. I bet you're glad the days are gone when someone had to be pumping air the whole time. To <laughs> yes, yes, that was, a, that was a profession. That was a job for, for, for people. Pump the organ. Yes, and, uh, and some organs, some historic organs still have that feature. I have a good friend, my friend in Genova, is the organist in a very important basilica in Genova, northwest of Italy. The organ in the, in the church where he plays, of course he has now the electric blower, but they, when they restored it, they kept the feature of pumping manually the air. And what happened on Easter Vigil, a few years ago, the power goes off, the lights goes off, and he sends two men of the choir to pump the air <laughs> pump and he kept playing and he kept play <laughs> they lit a couple of candles and he kept playing the organ with no power there you go <laughs> Gabriele Taroni organist and assistant music director here at the Cathedral of the Madeline thank you for speaking with me today in good faith thank you for listening that's our time for today Thanks to the staff at the Cathedral of the Madeline in downtown Salt Lake City for their help, and for Dr. Gabriele Taroni for generously sharing his stories, his faith, and his music. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. Email us, ingoodfaith at byu.edu, and if you enjoy the show, be sure and share it with a friend and leave a comment or review where you get your podcasts. Our episodes are all online at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith, our Twitter feed at ingoodfaithbyu. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon right here in Good Faith.